Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is sponsored by Legal Services of Cardassia. Don't worry, you're guilty, but we can tell you why. Welcome to The Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers. With your host, Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise, who we're going to talk about today. Yes, we are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. Also of recent vintage, a home of the Western Conference champion St. Louis Blues as of last night. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Uh, Kirk, did you watch any of the hockey game? Um, I didn't. My daughter really, really wanted to, but we had to get her to bed, so I couldn't watch it so she wouldn't watch it <laughs> I, won't, I won't say too much about it because a lot of you probably don't care but uh, I was so there's a, there's a there's a let's go blues chance or let's yep. go blues uh, that everybody in St. Louis knows and I was driving home last night when they scored the second goal I was listening to it on the radio and all the cars on the highway started honking the let's go blues <laughs> chance at the same time it was really funny that's kind of awesome actually is what it is <laughs> okay uh, anyways you can find me Ben on Twitter at Benjamin Siders and you can find Kirk at Kirk DMN you can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGG Pod. This information is also on our website, www.lggpodcast.com. I love www. I think it was Scott Adams that said it's the only acronym where the acronym <laughs> is three times longer than the thing it stands for. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, the other thing that's interesting sort of about www is nobody really uses it anymore. No, you just leave it out. You, don't yeah, you can it. leave it out for the most part. So today's topic is law and film, and there's really three aspects of this. Uh, one, We're going to touch on all three, but our focus is going to be uh, on two, in theory. Uh, the first aspect is how the law is used and portrayed in film. And I'm seeing film as a term of art, so we'll talk about TV shows actually yeah. too. Yeah, film being essentially the you know the old the cellulose o- that they used to record yeah, on the, the audio visual medium. <laughs> uh, and then we're, gonna, we're also going to talk about you know what is what is the portrayal of law uh, in, in in film teach you know the audience about the legal system. And then finally, is that accurate? No, and uh, does it matter? Uh, so for the first topic, how law is portrayed, this is actually something we covered in our very first episode uh, as something we were going to not do on this yep. podcast for a couple of reasons. One, we kind of want to stay focused on real-world law and real-world impacts of, uh, of you know, these, these culture or these, uh, these geek properties that we like so much. Uh, and two, there's actually other lawyers and other podcasts that already sort of cover, you know, fictive law and like the, the in-universe law yep. of all these worlds. And uh, Legal Geeks is one that we know about. In fact, they just did a, a Star Trek extravaganza where they talked about uh, the use of law in Star Trek. So we'll, we'll tweet out a link to that. Yeah. I ha- <laughs> haven't actually watched it yet. I didn't want to like poison our you know uh, thinking here. By the one legal geese I remember their from ideas. I think years ago, and I always thought it was a brilliant episode, is whether or not Han actually owns the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, they had a whole thing on like the law of like like bailments. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> like and it was a great episode because it, there's this whole question of that because again he wins it at cards, and we all know that you know yeah. like, it's like Sabak, which is really yeah. A fun we now game. know that. Uh, <laughs> wait, did, did he? Cheat cheat when he wanted or did he <laughs> there was lots of cheating yeah, is the yeah. answer hey, you know uh, if everybody accepts the terms of the deal then it's legitimate but cheating yeah. or not so but again it's they have some great episodes of sort of you know like legal questions you wouldn't necessarily get have ever arisen inside movies um, and sort of applying real world a lot of them and how it potentially applies so if you're into that kind of thing if you like this episode you might want to check them out it's just yeah. a cool, like, cool project. They, they point out all this stuff that only lawyers spot when we watch TV shows like wait a minute how how, how, how would that work <laughs> like what's the what's the law here um yeah. So, so anyway, there's there's really two two main types of how we see the law used in uh, the audiovisual uh, narratives that we, we kind of want to talk about. One yep. is where the legal system is itself the story. Yep. It's, a, it's a legal drama about lawyers and law firms or it's about a case uh, and the people involved in the case. And this would be like your, you know, your John Grisham thrillers. And yeah. um, Most um, of these, I think, would not be considered necessarily geek culture as much. They, you know, no. They're rarely set outside the real world. They're set in basically a, a recognizable real world, at yeah. least of the time. I mean, there's a lot of jokes about how some of these become very dated, you know, yeah. over time. But, you know, the legal the legal drama Drama has long history. I mean, how many of us read To Kill a Mockingbird? Everybody. I mean, let's face it, that's like something you read in school. I mean, Inherit inherit the Wind. Um, You know, these are all legal dramas, you know, that that have been around for, you know, years in conjunction with it. And I think the key thing to sort of think about in conjunction with them is that when we're talking about legal dramas and things that focus on the legal system, they're focused 
not on anything that's necessarily fiction or fantasy because they're trying to point out the real legal system. And that's what yeah. they're having fun with is sort of the legal system we're all familiar with, at least to some extent. And and for, for legal dramas, you know, I can't think of an example of a legal drama not set in basically the Anglo-American legal tradition, right, for um, an American audience. Yeah, at Can least you? as as stuff we get in the United States. I mean, yeah. maybe I'll be in It's usually U.S. court but, cases yeah. and things like that. And, and, and the reason, obviously, is because it's primarily a North American audience, at least an English-speaking audience, <laughs> That you have to suspend well, and, their and a North American production company. Yes, <laughs> but, and that audience has to be able to suspend their disbelief. So you're not going to have an entire TV series set in like the Klingon legal system, right? Like I, I'd watch yeah. that. You and I would both watch that, but most people <laughs> probably wouldn't. Um, actually, people listening to this podcast probably, probably would. would yeah. But yeah. Uh, so, so the other use we see of the law is where the. The law is more of, uh, on the way over, I described it to Kirk, as a framework on which to hang a plot. Yeah. Uh, where the, the the legal system itself isn't really what the show is about, but rather the law is being used to set up conflicts or disputes that are then used to you know present difficult moral choices to characters and through that make a point about something yeah. or define the character better and I just so Game of Thrones is now over uh, and so, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to spoil the very first episode and something that happens in the first 15 <laughs> yes. minutes one of the main characters has to execute a deserter yeah. uh, and it's presented as something he doesn't want to do his wife says do you have to and he says yes I'm the lord of the north it is my duty it is my job he's a deserter you know, whether I think it's just or fair or not, this is what I have to yeah. do. And, and this so, is literally like the first five minutes of the first episode and yeah. the first chapter of the books. Yeah, so you're, <laughs> if you haven't started watching Game of Thrones yet, I haven't spoiled much for you. <laughs> um, but so, so you know, that conflict is set up to help you understand this character. In the first few minutes, you know a bunch about Ned Stark and, and how he approaches his duties to things. And he's not just going to ignore the law because he looks at it and says, eh, whatever, I don't care so much about that yeah. guy. He brings his sons out. There's a whole big uh, uh, ceremonial aspect to it. And, and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't waste much time yeah. with it. The fact that he uses ice, his, you know, yeah. the, the sword representative of his yeah. office. It's very ritualized. And uh, it's, it's, and, and he has a, a remark to his sons where he says, he who issues the sentence should swing the sword. Meaning, you know, don't don't be a coward who's happy to pronounce judgments on others but doesn't have to live with the consequences of those. So yeah. it's it's a plot device to understand the character better and to, to sort of frame some of the central conflicts yeah. of the show. Although it does also, and I think it's important to say, while it does very strongly set up the character, it also sets up a very important aspect, which is because he is a deserter from the wall. Mm-hmm. What is the wall? What yeah. does it mean to serve on the wall? It's world building too. Yeah, it's world building as yeah. well. This is what we call good writing, where one scene serves a lot of different purposes. Uh, so yeah, so we we often see the law as more of a plot device, and I think this is probably most prevalent in Star Trek, where they use fictional legal constraints to set up a moral conflict, and it's usually kind of um, like, like law and duty versus uh, choice and morality. Yeah. Like, and we were talking again on the way over. The Prime Directive is a great example of this, where you know the Prime Directive in Star Trek says that they're not supposed to interfere with the internal affairs of the planets they go to, yeah. and, and to disrupt the natural development of these you know these these you know undeveloped societies. And basically, each planet gets autonomy over its own own, own affairs, and the Federation doesn't just show up and project its morality on them. And and so that's do, exactly yeah. what it does. And yeah. that's what they do every <laughs> single episode is show up at the planet and project the Federation's morality upon them, arguing that either it's an exception to the Prime Directive or it's in yeah. line with the Prime Directive or we just don't care about the yeah. Prime Directive. And, so, and, and the, the plot choice is for the characters. Does Captain Picard honor the Prime Directive and obey these rules, uh, pr- producing what he would say is an unjust result, or does he um, you know, thwart the Prime Directive? directive and violate his oath to uphold it, but then have to have some really good explanation for it later. Yeah, and I think the, the thing I think Star Trek plays around with this a lot because I think it was sort of a central tenant of just the way Star Trek was designed as a show. The social commentary aspect. Yeah, it's of a, it. you know Star Trek was a much more social commentary show than any other real science fiction, especially of its day was. You know, Battlestar Galactica was not so much a social commentary as you know humans fighting robots, mm-hmm. um, you know, and stuff like that. You know, there's other shows that have gotten much more into this. There's plenty of shows that definitely utilize law and legal constraints in conjunction with it. I mean, there's plenty of episodes of Babylon 5 you can point to that, mm-hmm. you know, use law as a very important plot device. Um, there are episodes of, like, you know, my, my son's into watching the Star Wars um, animated series. There's a couple in there that are very specific about, you know, sort of law and them interacting with particular legal yeah. things as well as interacting with the, you know, the law of the, the Federation of Planets and stuff yep. like that. Sorry, that's Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
It's the unforgivable sin. You can't cross Star Wars. <laughs> you cross Star Wars with Star Trek. Then it becomes Star Trek Wars. Star Trek. That's the one with the wizard boy, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's interesting. I think episode one. Another good show that has a lot of line. It actually. It does. Uh, so I mean, episode one. You could argue one of the reasons that it, it doesn't work as a story very well is that the central conflict is between the Trade Federation and the rest of the the, the Galactic Senate or the yeah, Galactic, Galactic Republic. Senate. Yeah, they're public. We're never. It's never really explained to us at all what that relationship is and what is the Trade Federation like a, a legislative or agency or is it like a private organization yeah. and what is it what is the blockade supposed to accomplish how and why can, Naboo why, why Naboo how can Naboo not survive without getting space trade and uh, wh- how are Jedi supposed to solve that I mean none of it is really explained to us as the audience and I just I remember watching it and thinking alright so they're setting all this stuff up at some point it's all going to pay off and, and coalesce together in some sort of con- coherent story and it just never does yeah. and I think that's one of the reasons why that the, just the, the story doesn't work the, the legal background for what these organizations are and what their motivations and purposes are is never really laid yeah. out so it's kind of hard to understand the motivations of the characters and why anything that you're seeing is happening I think that is actually one of the problems when you talk about the prequels and, and something you definitely sort of saw early on is I don't think by the end of episode three we have any idea who the Trade Federation really is. No, you still don't. I just remember in episode three, um, the the two guys from from the Trade Federation show up. Like, why, why are these guys even still here doing anything? Weren't they defeated? Like, I don't yeah. understand what they're like. Who, you know, you got the droid army, and I, I never figured out who was allied with who and who was double crossing who. <laughs> well, and I who, think that was supposed to be a little who, bit open. But. Yeah, who, who knew what about like? And as they doled out more information, it just became more and more opaque. And yeah. at the end, I'm like, I. I understand at a high level that Senator Palpatine set up a conflict to put himself into power, but how exactly he saw all of these pieces falling into place just perfectly for this to happen, and all these characters it's behaving... because he's a Sith Lord, Ben. He I know, sees but, stuff like that. But if he has the power to, like, do all this stuff, then why even have other characters? He can just snap <laughs> his fingers like Thanos and just do whatever he wants. <laughs> the infamous finger snaps. <laughs> uh, the other thing I wanted to, to mention is we see, um, you know, and, and in some instances, I talked about Ned Stark and the execution, that's sort of a, a micro use of the law in one discrete scene, you know, to, to flesh out his character and give you some background information. But you also have the law as a as a more macro uh, backdrop, and we see that in Game of Thrones too, yep. where the entire thing is a battle over succession to a throne. And as we'll talk about later, um, you know, there's I don't think I'll, I'll, I'll defer to you other Game of Thrones geeks. I don't think there's like a divine appointment element of kingship in Game of Thrones. There, yeah, I mean, there, in many respects, there can't be because you have multiple competing. Religions, right. so I mean, you've got two very distinct competing religions plus a third that's kind of on the side. So it's more of a. Yeah, I'm coming up from the books for anybody yeah, who does Kirk's this. Kirk's not watched the shows I have yet. Not so watched the show. I've I've read the books. Kirk has only book knowledge. I have only HBO knowledge. <laughs> so so we may have different different thoughts about that. But at least in the show, um, you know the 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 Targaryens are shown as having accumulated power several hundred years ago and ruled for a couple centuries through the use of force. Basically, they had yeah. dragons and nobody else did. And then uh, they they lose their minds and there's Robert's rebellion. Yeah. And now uh, the Baratheons have power yeah. until they don't, and that, you know, and so it's there's it seems like a, a might makes right or or a, you know or, or a consensus we're all going to agree to follow this one person who's yeah. who's winning wars type approach. Well, and, to it. and if you really want to talk about law in Game of Thrones and sort of I think the best example of sort of macro law of Game of Thrones, let's talk about the Unsullied. Yeah, I mean, you know, which she acquires completely within the law. And sort of by completely violating it. Yes, yeah, so we should explain what that is for those of you who haven't watched it. Uh, the unsullied. So the the basic the basic plot of what? Well, how do you even sum that up? Let's let's back up. So Game of Thrones is is a battle for succession to a throne Thrones, that, that's yes. in chaos. And you've got the Daenerys Targaryen is the daughter of the last quote unquote legitimate. King, who was overthrown by a coup? Essentially. Who was overthrown by a military coup? Effectively, yep. uh, and so she is displaced and trying to get back her throne. Uh, and then you also have other people who think they should be king. But the the story is in it's many respects— It's called Game of Thrones for a reason. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in many respects mainly about her, uh, although we find out later that it's not really. And I don't want to get into it too much. Uh, but yeah, she acquires an army. To, she can it's take, a mercenary army. She yeah, buys a mercenary, a mercenary army. army. Uh, and I don't remember exactly how it goes down, but you're right. She she sort of acquires so, it yeah. and then also uses some tricks to not have to pay so for it. So part of the trick in it, and again, I'm coming from the books, so I don't exactly know how it was shown in the in the, the show, but she has acquired three dragons, so the only three dragons that exist, um, and, and she's from the family that, that's known for dragons. And so she wants to acquire this mercenary army from a, a group that basically you know generates mercenary armies from a city that's famous for generating mercenary armies. Mm-hmm. And what she, she needs an army. That's the reason she's doing this. 
And so she basically agrees that what she wants is all of the army. She wants yep. literally everything. They have all this, the people in training. The insulators have a very, very particular, and I'm not going to go into it, training regimen. supposed to be an extremely regimen. elite fighting force yeah. that, is, that is incredibly loyal uh, to whoever has bought their loyalty. Yeah. And, like, they're all eunuchs, so yeah, they, can't, eunuchs. they can't engage in war atrocities and things like yeah. that. Like, it's supposed to be the most disciplined fighting force. And they're all essentially trained from birth. There's things they have yeah. to go through to it. Like, the one I always distinctly remember is it's they're all given a puppy when they're young that's basically their one companion and, yep. like, they're helpful, which they have to strangle at some point in time later. Yeah. Um, to prove that they have no moral compunctions, have no moral and they'll compunctions. do whatever they're ordered to do. Um, and sort of things like that. So it's it actually flits with a lot of, when you bump into a lot of the sort of, you know, like, futuristic armies and the idea of sort of the really heartless armies that are true mercenaries, that's what this is kind of portrayed as. So she basically goes to the people who, who train these and says, I want everything. I want all the students that are training. I want yeah. everything that you have that is I'll the army. I'll take the whole army. <laughs> and they're like, well, how are you going to pay for it? And she says, I'll trade you a dragon. Which is, you know, and they point out in the books, is, you know, an, of an enormous, an, essentially, yeah. a, you know, impossible value. Yeah, infinity value. Because for nobody dragons. has dragons. Yeah. And so the idea that he'll trade her a dragon. And, oh, so, and she also knows that the dragons are loyal to her as a Targaryen, the, and they're not going to be loyal yeah. to anybody else. And that's really the trick to it. She doesn't, she gives them the dragon, you know, she says, you know, hey, you know, you know, here's the dragon, and it, like, hops over to her, and, to him and stuff like that, or, like, flies over to him. And they give her, you know, the deeds. And one of the big things with it is, is then she holds up the deeds to, you know, this raid massive troops, and is like, like, you know, I own you now. You know, this is the thing. I own you all now. You know, in conjunction with it, you all acknowledge this. They agree. And she gets everybody to agree that she indeed does own the army. Then she orders the army to destroy the town and kill their prior overseers. Mm-hmm. At which point in time, they try to direct the dragon to stop this. And, of course, the dragon could care less. And it yeah. sides with the army because it sides with her. And that's basically her comment. She says, dragons know no master. Um, and it's that kind of thing as to you know, sort of what it is, is that you look at it and say... You know, she relied upon getting that army entirely by the law, Mm -hmm. which she completely violated because she knew she wasn't actually trading the dragon. Um, And then you have the army, which follows her extremely loyally, essentially throughout the rest of the show. They strictly follow the law. Like, they were ordered to to, to kill the people that they just sold them. They're like, all right, well, we don't follow their orders anymore, so I guess that's what we're going to do. Yeah, and they do. They they sort of murder. They they brutally murder them, basically. Sort of a caveat emptor principle. (laughs) Like, when you sell the only army you have to people who are still (laughs) in your city with that same army, um, maybe you should rethink that deal. Well, there's a lot of justification, actually, in the book, at least. They actually talk about a lot of the motivation of the guys selling them, of the fact that, oh, they can always make another one. And, like, you yeah. know, they're a little bit reluctant with the idea that that means they have no troops, but they can always make another one. And that's sort of the real key with it is they're already contemplating, because these are slaves, obviously. I mean, yeah. that's the way they're portrayed. So it's one of those things. But, again, I think the thing that's so interesting about that scene is we see it in some sense as being a just outcome, these slaves turning on their ma- being turned on their masters. I was rooting for them. But at the same time, you have this scene, which is, on the one half, this rigid adherence to the law. At the same time, I mean, you know, we sort of look at it as, a, as lawyers and say, you have one side looking at it and saying, yep, the contract is signed, we're abiding by the contract. And the other side saying, wait, there's no consideration for the contract. And then saying, we don't care. So we call it an, an illusory contract. Yeah. The dragon was never really part of the deal. It was never really because, part of the deal. But, or you could say it was a one-sided mistake. Daenerys knew that, and they, did, they didn't do their research. They yeah. should have researched the deal better. <laughs> yeah, so. and those kind of things are really interesting. And again, I think that's the... When you look at it, it was obviously a plot point. She needed an army. She needed a very loyal yeah. army that would follow her. And she needed it very quickly, because that was also necessary for the purposes of furthering the plot. <laughs> Let's talk about why, why we're even discussing this. Why, why do we care about how the law is shown in drama? And I think there's a couple reasons. One is that... Um, it's it's interesting, right? Legal dramas are, are popular. Um, they continue to be popular. Uh, and they're also, uh, in, in many respects, wildly inaccurate. Yeah. And I think one of the questions we always have is, do people get most of their knowledge about the legal system from what they see fictionalized on TV? Yeah. Uh, and, and even I would go so far as to say things like, you know, Making a Murderer and other shows like that that are supposed to be based in real cases. You know, I think people people who are into those get a lot of their knowledge about the legal system from that. But, you know, those kind of salacious criminal law cases are, are almost always going to be, you know, under state law. Yeah. By state courts, and you know, if those of you who've done any legal practice know that the rules in state courts are often very different from the rules in federal courts, and the degree to which uh, you know formalities are observed varies from case to case. So um, you don't you don't get I don't think an accurate depiction of how the law works and what the legal practice is. And to the extent that people you know you know it's TV and it's not real, but it has to feel real enough to suspend your disbelief. Yeah. So I think at least subconsciously we tend to look at it and. Think think this is close enough to how things work uh, 
uh, to sort of assume you have an, a basic understanding of our legal system. Yeah, I think you have the same problem in some sense of legal dramas as, as doctors always talk about with medical dramas, of the fact that, you know, there's a lot of drama in the medical profession, but it doesn't happen one hour every week. Yeah. You know, it's— it, We don't have one day at the ER where, like, 45 people come in with, yeah. you know, the first ever seen cases in this— Yeah, yeah that happens— once in a lifetime somewhere in the world. Yeah. You know, it doesn't happen in your ER, you know, five times a season. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, and, and I think you have the same problem with legal dramas is it's a lot of times in legal dramas, they want to set up this sort of legal drama stuff, but they end up, they have to kind of force the issue in a way that, you know, like these prosecutors get every interesting case, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I remember somebody saying, and I don't, I don't know if I have the statistics right or whatever it was, but I remember somebody like did an analysis of the show ER mm-hmm. and the fact that like, if you actually went through like what happened in their ER and assumed that that's what happened like every day for whatever it was, like the entire population of the city would be through the ER in like <laughs> six and a half years well, or something like that. like cop dramas, right? Where someone, <laughs> ha- you know, someone has to pull their, their, you know, their police weapon and, and fire it, you know, and uh, in, in the real world, you'd be put on administrative paid leave. You have to go through counseling and all kinds of other things before you're allowed back on, on your beat, right? Yeah. You, you can't just go around shooting your gun at random, and, and, and then you just go back to work the next day. Yeah. That's not really how that works usually. And yet, I mean, we have that you kind of, you know, in some sense, we kind of glorify it, I think, in, in conjunction well, yeah. with TV. You know, because well, we make it seem like it's consequence-free, right? Like, yeah. like people just casually pull weapons and fire them with, with no further regard to it, or lawyers just casually take on these cases. And, like, and I think that's the, one of the big things with it is, and I think what you really get into the lawyers, and this is the thing I had with it, is what I think you really bump into with legal dramas, and it's one of my biggest complaints about legal dramas. Now, it is a bit as the lawyer, but you know, when you're a lawyer and somebody comes into your office, you know nothing about them. You know nothing about the case. And when you're watching an illegal drama, this happens too. You know, you know, generally the case is not set up until you have this actual start. Now, occasionally, you know, take like a show with Law and Order, you see some hits on the crime first, and the person potentially being captured. You know, but in a lot of legal dramas, it's essentially the the, the case starts with client walks into office. They then spend sort of the next usually half an hour to mm-hmm. forty minutes of setting up what the lawyer finds out happened from the client. From the client. They then portray, okay, for the next 20 minutes, we're going to go to trial. (laughs) Well, you notice that there's been no discussion of what the prosecutor knows or the other side. Well, and all the discovery done in legal dramas is done on the stand at trial. Yeah. I mean, when's the last time? Other than, like, uh, the social network, I I can't think of a movie that spent any time in a deposition. Yeah. Maybe well, the office. It's a few of them do, but they're 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 shows where they're almost based upon real cases, so they kind yeah. of need to because like of the what social, it is. social network. Um, I'm trying to think. There's um, I want to say Flash of Genius may have done a little bit ahead yeah. of time too. Um, but yeah, the that's why I like my cousin Vinny. Like they show him at some point going around and interviewing all of the prosecution's witnesses. <laughs> then he gets them on the stand and asks them the questions he already knows the answer to. Yeah. You as the audience aren't given that, and that's where the drama comes from. Is he's going to do a great job examining these witnesses and impeaching their credibility. You just don't know what he's going to say yeah. because you didn't get to see all of his questioning during discovery, but you are shown that he's doing it. Yeah, and I think that that's, again, the, the problem I think that most lawyers bump into in conjunction with legal dramas is, and, and this is what we were just talking about a little bit before the show, and it's definitely my big problem with legal dramas, the way a legal drama is always portrayed, there was always a side which is right. Yeah. And I think what you bump into is, as any lawyer would effectively tell you, you may have a client that you're advocating for and you believe that your client has a legitimate case, has the better case, stuff like that. But it's not this idea of it being just inherently right. You always recognize that, you know, a case you have has holes in it, you know, has mm-hmm. potential problems, has ways a jury could find the other way. I mean, any decent lawyer who's going to go to trial knows they can lose a case. Yeah. Whereas it's portrayed, I think, a lot of times in the the – the legal drama is that they either win the case and justice is upheld or they lose the case and and justice is not served. And in reality, I think for the most part, when you look at it, regardless of how a case comes down, you have to realize that if you're going to portray a legal drama correctly, the first half hour needs to be the defense, the second half hour needs to be the prosecution, Mm -hmm. and the third half hour is deciding which one of them is right, recognizing you think they both are. Yeah. You know, that would the really finale be is the really, while the jury is deliberating, everybody's madly negotiating a settlement yeah, exactly. to avoid finding out what they think. <laughs> what the jury thinks. But, but again, I think it's the problem you bump into in it is it's, you know, when you're watching as the audience, it's one thing to say that the attorney is obviously fighting for particular clients and believes their client to be right. But as the audience, 
and, and effectively as the jury, as a, as a viewer, stuff like that, you're only portrayed with one lawyer's really side of the case. Yeah. The other lawyer oftentimes is portrayed is either sort of, you know, being obnoxious or being, you know, somebody who's, who's portraying a position they shouldn't be portraying. Sort of almost a faceless enemy. There's just some yeah, general enemy. prosecutor or, or defense attorney on the other side that you're just supposed to not like and they're always unethical or, or you know, and they're yeah, you always— You have a lot of portrays that they've done something unethical yeah. or they're at least immoral or, you know, those kind of or things. Or just unlikable, if nothing else. Yeah, or, or yeah, it often is portrayed as unlikable. But I think the, the real key thing that you really get into with that, and I think it's one of those things you have to go into when you watch legal dramas and just be aware of, is just the nature of the way a legal drama has to portray the case. You're only getting one side. It has to be interesting to the audience. You've got to have a protagonist and a point of view. Yeah. And and you have so you have a you know, highly condensed timeline. Like you, know, you you watch like Boston Legal, which doesn't even try to be realistic. And they, yeah. They very they break the fourth wall all the time and very tongue and cheek cheek acknowledge that. Uh, but even then, you know, I'll see you'll see Alan Shore in court in the morning for something. If someone gets stabbed in a hallway because that happens all the time at the courthouse also. Yeah. And then they have a trial that afternoon about it. Like that would you would you can't even get a jury pool put together yeah. that fast. Much less have a, a judge with a trial setting like in real courts judges have trial days they yeah. set aside you know we're going to do procedural stuff for the first two weeks of the month and I'm in trial the last week you don't just have an open trial slot to get a trial I mean it's Criminal trials go faster because we have a constitution. You can't just sit around forever. Yeah. But you know, a civil trial in state court, you may be scheduled a year or two years out before yeah. you can get one. And I think that's the two big sort of fallacies that you really get in TV in conjunction with law is one the speed to, the speed from act to trial. Yeah, you know, which even in criminal cases could readily be a couple months, particularly in major capital yeah. cases and stuff like that. In civil cases, is measured in years. I mean, that's the the reality of it. Even on uh, fast track cases, like fast yeah. track in the civil cases, we'll get you to a, we'll get you to trial within a year. Yeah. Um, and again, I think that you bump into that. The second thing I think you definitely bump into is there's very little trial prep really shown in legal dramas. A lot of times what's done is trial prep is is done in the courtroom. Yeah. And again, it's the I remember the, there's an old comment that you'll hear lawyers regularly say, you never ask a witness in court a question you don't already know the answer to. Yeah. Yet they do that all the time in yeah. legal dramas. That's an important part of legal dramas is that they need to get the information. Yeah, a, a lot of what, what happens in a real trial is handled in discovery and pretrial to decide what evidence is going to come in, what evidence is not, to narrow the issues. None of that's portrayed because I'm sure to, to non-lawyers it's incredibly it's really, boring. It's really boring. Uh, but it's where all the work gets done. And you also see lawyers on TV are afforded a lot more liberty with what kind of courtroom antics they can get away with <laughs> than what you're usually permitted and in the courtroom. And some of that's room. drama. I mean, that's to yeah. give the drama to the show, yeah. But like, you know, they, they get up and they march around and walk over to the jury and lean over the jury bar and look at it. You can't come out from behind your desk. And if you do, you have to ask for permission to approach the bench yeah. or the jury. And if you don't, you get yelled at. Like, yeah, and it's usually because you want to give the judge yeah. a witness or jury yeah. something. So, yeah, I'm going to hand a document to the judge. Judge, permission to approach the, the bench. Yeah. Permission granted. Then you walk up and you give them the document. You walk back to where you were, and you stand at your desk. Yeah, um, and, and again, I think that's the, the problem. I think you get into it with legal dramas and people thinking legal dramas are real. Um, is nobody has any idea of how courts actually carry on. The other one I always love is as I said this is my other favorite thing, and a few have done this correctly. There is very rarely a courtroom that's as elaborate and as pretty as the courtrooms <laughs> you see on TV. A lot of courtrooms are literally almost glorified conference rooms. I mean, they're they're not that attractive. Now, yeah, you talk about a Supreme Court, you talk about well, a you court get to where, the old state courthouses, yeah. like the, the classic town green uh, square, and there's like an old courthouse, and yeah, there's a lot of wood, and but they're they're not typically well maintained. Yeah. Uh, then you know, it's gonna let them age. Then you eventually build a new justice center next door and have all your fancy courtrooms that have modern technology there. Yeah. That's the other thing I think you. Also, recently has seen is that courts, legal dramas still don't show a lot of technology. I think in no. some sense it's the one place the law itself is actually more advanced <laughs> than the legal drama, surprisingly. Yeah. The um, judge has a computer at her desk. Yeah. She can look at the screen and, and, and see the same thing that you're showing on the screen in front of the jury. Yeah. There's often has multiple screens that sort of show, you know, show everything around. I mean, the last time I saw a legal drama, they tend to use effectively like video carts, you know, even though they're, they're doing it with iPads and stuff like that, they're effectively using video carts. Yeah. Which isn't true. I mean, there's this TV screens on the walls, you know. I've been to courtrooms with judges just like, we're paperless. And, and you come up and say, what case is it? And you tell her, and she types in the docket number into the into her computer and brings up all the pleadings, and it's all right there. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that it's, it is one of those things that a lot of the portrayal of courtroom action is really inaccurate. The fact that they also portray essentially law as courtroom is also really inaccurate. Yeah. And and again, the other thing I think you really bump into, and again, I wouldn't say it's necessarily inaccurate, but it's you only do get one side of the portrayal, which is fine with the idea that you are watching this being the advocate for that particular person. But I think most people in the course of doing it are not watching the show as the advocate for that person. They're 
watching it as an outside observer should be justice be served, and that's not what you're seeing. You're seeing it as a one-sided advocacy issue. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a couple of specific uh, Star Trek episodes that we think um, tease out a lot of these issues pretty well. Yep. And the first one is Justice, which I think is a season one, maybe a season two episode. Tasha Yar is definitely, yeah. Yeah, so Tasha Yar's in it, so it's early on. Uh, it's, yeah, that has, it doesn't have to be season one. Uh, I think wasn't she there? Denise Crosby was there for season two. I, she, since, I can't remember. She died in season two. She dies one. in that terrible episode with yes. the, the 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 weird the guy in the garbage bags. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they call the skin. Uh, and she so, was such a good character too. I know. Uh, so uh, so in in justice, um, the, you know, the Enterprise stops at this very idyllic, peaceful planet. It's got sort of. Um, um, I don't know, like a, a ancient Greek sort of aesthetic to I it. Think it's an English garden feel to yeah, it. Yeah, English garden it, maybe. Like everybody has curly hair and they're all blonde and, and built, and um, it's presented as being very peaceful and tranquil and primitive, um, but but nice. Yeah. Uh, and what, you know, long story short, what happens is uh, that at some point Wesley is playing games like a, a, a ball game of some kind with some other other youths uh, on the planet while they're on a visit for I forget why they're there. Uh, and he uh, goes to catch a ball and steps over a little white fence and tramples some recently planted flowers. Yep. And then he's sentenced to die immediately <laughs> because of doing this. Because yes. he did this. Because their laws uh, have no concept of proportionality. It's if you violate the law, you are put to death immediately. Like a guy shows up with a needle to inject him, and of course they're all like, well, "Hang on, hang on a second, that, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. We need to think about this." And uh, and and sort of the conflict plays out under the Prime Directive that we have to honor their rules and traditions while we're on their planet, we're governed by their laws. But this is profoundly unjust from the Federation's point of view. And so uh, I also should point out in this episode uh, that it. Um, oh, that's a different one. Um, we'll get to rules of engagement in a second. Um, so uh, the, the, the fundamental conflict under the law is the concept of proportionality and yep. degree and, and whether this is fair or not. And we, we kind of covered this, that there's, there's a line at the end where Picard, uh, so there's, there's also a side plot of, of some sort of orbiting god that uh, people on the planet worship. The Enterprise tries to scan it, can't quite figure out what it is. We never do find out what it is because of syndication. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and cause, yeah, I, we, we were talking the way over, like, the, well, let's, let's wrap up what happens. Ultimately, Card, Picard decides, you're not going to kill Wesley. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take him on our ship and we're going to leave. And even the people on the planet wanting to carry out the sentence, they agree to suspend the sentence for long enough for the for the Enterprise crew to deliberate and figure out what they want to do. And Picard eventually just says, no, you're not going to do it. It's not justice. It's not fair. And it's not going to happen. You know, prime directive be damned. And uh, the people on the planet even acknowledge, like, we, we can't stop you. You know, you guys are advanced. You've got this starship. You can just beam away whenever you want. So you have the the military ability to enforce your will regardless of not only our laws but your own and there's nothing we can do about it but then like please don't come back though (laughs) if you do that because our entire society will collapse if we don't have this strict system that's what allows us to live the way that we do yeah and in some sense you can get away with it because we can justify it of the we could simply not enact the sentence upon you so even though we would have that was the sentence to be enacted we simply could not do it you know it's it's the same way as you sort of look at it and say you know hey if they came to and said this is the sentence and they said well you know under federation law you know we're the ones who get to kill them and they shoot him first, you know, they still couldn't enact the sentence, even yeah. though that would be the, you know, sort of thing, you know, whatever it would be. Um, but yeah, I think, and one thing I actually think is great about this episode, and I point out, if the episode is called Justice. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's a great example of the fact that what is justice, and that's what this episode's all about. Is it an outcome or is it a process? Yeah, and that's and that's. I think people thing. conceive of it as an outcome. Yeah. I think lawyers conceive of it as a process. Yeah, and and I think this this show does that show does a very that episode does a very good job of sort of pointing out this is messy. Like it's yeah. not clear what justice is. We have numerous conflicting laws bumping into each other. Plus, we have this sort of you know space god that that sort of is imposing some of this. Yeah, in the fact because our that argument is the space god's going to ruin our society if yeah. if we don't obey this rule and we don't execute him, and then they don't, and he beams away, and nothing happens. But then the space god will not let the Enterprise leave until Picard gives a, a trademarked impassioned speech about the nature of justice and law yeah. and proportionality, and then they're allowed to go. Yeah, I think he also quarantines the planet, if I remember rightly. At the end, uh, I think so. I think they're supposed to be moving them somewhere else for some reason. I can't remember yeah. why they're actually there. 
yeah, there's something going on with it. But yeah, and again, I think it's a it's a it's a good example. It's the one I think everybody talks about in Star Trek. The the great thing I think Star Trek does a lot, and I think a lot of Star Treks do it. I joked about we're going to talk about Captain Kirk in this. <laughs> my my thought whenever I see Justice is I also always jump back to the original series, uh, you know, Star Trek, um, and the episode The Apple, which is I think is generally considered one of the worst episodes ever made of Star Trek. Um, but it's the it's the basic episode where they beam down to a planet, which again appears idyllic, everything along those lines. And shortly after they beam down, they are informed that they've been killed in armed conflict and need to report to this location essentially to be killed. Um, and what you find out in the course of it is effectively there's this massive global war ongoing on this planet, which is all being fought by computers using probabilities and statistics. And whenever people are determined to be casualties of the war, they simply report to these facilities and are effectively executed. Um, and the reason that they do this is because it's not destroying the infrastructure. It's a vastly more effective way to fight the war than destroying everything around. And it's much more humane. People don't actually die, you know, from falling bricks, you know, from being buried alive, stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's a very sort of, you know, humane execution at the end. But you sort of look at it and go, but wait a minute. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> how can we possibly ever agree to this? Yeah, you know, who just shows kind of up, you know? Like- um, and again, I think at the end of the episode, I believe that the, the Enterprise crew basically just beams away and says, no, we're not doing this. Um, and it's it's those kind of things where what you, what you bump into a lot of times with the structure of these is people where they come in and say, we're going to put forward these legal systems, which are very absolute and by being very absolute, create these idyllic societies. But then when they interact with our main characters and sort of our society, we see them as being sort of just awful. Mm-hmm. Yet the, the idyllic society exists because of them. And so you, you end up with this sort of inherent conflict. And I think it was something that Star Trek played with a lot of we can make an, an idyllic society which is everything but idyllic to outsiders. And in all the Star Trek episodes, you, the the crew was always portrayed as the outsider. Mm-hmm. But it also was a bit of the playoff of the Federation is kind of portrayed as being an idyllic society. It is because they've got this prime directive. It's yep. this idyllic society where we've we've mastered the concept of pluralism. How do we have all these different cultures work together and get along? They all buy into this basic principle. Yeah. Then they go talk to these other cultures that that whether they agree with the principle or not are inherently at conflict with the core values of the Federation. You know the idea of what is justice? You know, in in this, I forget what the planet's called, but in this episode, justice is we have the rule, you violate it, you're going to die. It's that's the process. And Picard's looking at the outcome and saying, but the, the, there's no concept of proportionality. Your process is wrong. You're missing a piece of how you apportion justice and how you administer justice. Yep. Yeah, and that kind of thing. But then again, you look at it as the Federation and say the Federation has done the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and, and then for them to come down there and say you have to have this is just to tell the society what justice really is and that they're wrong. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of thing. And, and then you bump into something like, you know, take the Klingons or the Romulans, which have an entirely different society, which we see as being the enemies of the Federation. Are they not simply the outsiders that don't believe in this? Because the Klingons are warrior culture. Yep. You know, as to what it is, they don't acknowledge the Federation as being, except because they're weak. Yeah. You know, so we look at it and say, you have now two things in inherent conflict. You, you create it. And again, I look back, and I think that was a lot of the goal, especially of the original Star Trek, of uh, just sort of, you know, asking constant questions that don't have answers, sort of like this show does. Yep. Um, and one of the things that it did very, very well and why it's had so much sticking power is exactly that reason. Yep. Unfortunately, it presents the quandary, that, right? It, it presents the, the subject for, for discussion and thought, yeah. which is what it's supposed to be really good at. Uh, and there's actually a judge once who uh, was remarking on, there's a famous uh, quote from Aristotle, the law is reasonable free from passion. Yeah. Uh, and there's a judge I, I read once that said that uh, people are Klingon. We are we are p- emotional people uh, and passionate people, but the law aspires to be Vulcan, where we just coldly and calmly apply uh, reason free from passion, not influenced by our emotions. Yeah. But it's it's a legal fiction. You know, emotions is, is part of being human. It's part of our yeah. everyday experience. And you and can't just turn that law. off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is part of the law. Um the other episode we wanted to talk about is uh, Rules of Engagement. It's a Deep Space Nine episode. Uh, and I think fewer people have probably watched Deep Space Nine. You should, though. It's excellent. Uh, At least it, it, it's excellent for a while. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of, of weak seasons, but it's, it's yeah. overall good, uh, especially once you get into the, the Dominion War. Uh, so, was, so stick with it after the first season. It, it gets really good. Uh, so there's, there's, a, there's a part where the Cardassians – I keep saying Cardassians now because <laughs> – Keep up with the Kardashians. They're not necessarily that different. When I first heard their their name, keeping up with the Kardashians, 
Kardashian, Kardashians. <laughs> I was like, my um, first thought was, is this like a new Star Trek spinoff? Was, that's wasn't like, there a meme that floated around like keeping up with the Kardashians? Yeah, had, like Gold, Gold Ducat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so the Kardashians are uh, at war with the Klingons and a Worf, war, uh, you know, Lieutenant Worf from Next Generation also appears on Deep Space Nine to shore up ratings in season <laughs> three or four or something. Yeah. Um, so Worf is on the, the Defiant. That's the little ship. And he's on escort duty with some uh, some Cardassian uh, freighters or something, and they're attacked by Klingons. And there's a, a part where Worf is fighting them off, and a, a, a ship is about to decloak, you know, so you can see it. And rather than wait for it to decloak and identify it visually as a as a military ship, he just opens fire on the sort of the the shimmering in space, yep. and then it decloaks. It turns out it's a civilian transport, and he destroys it. Yeah. And the Klingons claim that there were you know 400 some odd Klingons civilians on it that Worf slaughtered, and they want to have him extradited from uh, Deep Space Nine to Kronos to stand trial there for for what he's done, basically. Yep. An act of cowardice killing civilians. Uh, and so there's a, a trial, uh, an extradition trial, basically. It's basically a jurisdictional trial. Do they have cause for the Federation to have to turn war over, where presumably he'll just be put to death uh, on Kronos? Yeah, it's, well, I think you said it in, this, in many respects, it's a sham trial. I mean, it is a sham trial. So the, you, you won't be surprised. The whole thing's a setup. Like, the Klingons are trying to set him up up. They they know him well enough uh, to know his tactics. Apparently, they predicted he'd do this. So they they set him up. The ship was empty. There was nobody on it. Uh, Worf doesn't figure this out. It's Odo and, and Cisco that figure it <laughs> of out uh, separately. Uh, and they eventually confront the Klingon. The Klingon sent a lawyer, basically an advocate named uh, uh, Chipak. Uh, yeah, Chipak. It rhymes with Reebok, Chipak. Chipak. They send uh, Chipak uh, to to be the advocate to uh, make the case for to uh, I think it's a Starfleet admiral for why Worf should be extradited. And th- this one's interesting because it's one of the few um, Star Trek episodes that really has a lot of sort of in-trial detail of how the advocacy works and how yeah. the rules work. The other one that's kind of like that is the the one where they put uh, Data on trial. They have in-rem jurisdiction over him as property of Starfleet. Yep. And then Riker's forced to defend Starfleet's position. Uh, that's another good one that we could talk about. Um well, this one's interesting because it gets into a lot of evidentiary issues that are sort of around the periphery. So, you know, they, they don't really have good evidence against Worf other than what they faked, yeah. uh, which Worf is not inclined, you know, doesn't, doesn't accept any representation, doesn't really advocate for himself, stands by his actions. Uh, and so they— Some of that's just Worf's character. It's just character. He's underbound, not going to apologize. I did the right thing. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't know they were civilians. I don't believe they're civilians. Uh, but Worf doesn't really have any evidence in his favor. So— uh, uh, Chipak goes around gathering impeachment evidence, basically, and finding out that Worf used to go on the holodeck and and recreate a historical event in Klingon society where an ancient hero slaughtered a bunch of civilians, and uh, and that he has anger problems. And at some point, uh, Chipak uh, provokes him into physically provokes Worf into yeah. physically attacking Chipak, and he's like, "Ah, oh, see my point. He's he's a rage animal out of control." Uh, and, and you know, at the end, his his ruse is is penetrated, yeah. and and it doesn't work. And Cisco's still mad at Worf, and he's like, "Our rules say you had to visually identify first. You got away with one here, but th- that could have been a real transport. So you know, don't do that again." Uh, and then Chipak has this quote, which uh, is kind of relevant to something we were just talking about. He says, quote, We Klingons are not concerned with matters of fact and circumstance. What matters to us is what was in Worf's heart when he gave the order to fire. Was he just a Starfleet officer doing his duty, or was he a Klingon warrior reveling in the battle? That is why I am here, because if he was a Klingon lost in the bloodlust of combat, only we can judge him, not you, end quote. So this kind of goes back to the concept of the, you know, the Federation, which the Klingons are still part of. Yeah. Um, as um, sort of are they? Wait, I think they <laughs> yeah, are. they're part of the Federation. Is sort of loose members because that's the, the Klingons join, but the Romulans don't. That's, that's the right. key between next yeah. generation. Yeah, yeah. So, so at, at any rate, uh, you know. Th- He's trying to say that you know, even regardless of what the facts are, what matters is what was his intention. How was he acting? The, the Federation doesn't have the Klingons' value system. It doesn't have the same uh, warrior culture mentality, and they can't stand in judgment over whether Worf's conduct was proper or not under the circumstances. And that's why he wants him brought back to Kronos to answer for it. Now, you'd think firing, firing on a civilian transport would be wrong in both societies. If anything, you'd think it'd be more wrong under the Federation. But the, the subtext 
context that the Federation is more inclined to let it go because it's a a breach of protocol, but a mistake made with good intentions yeah. to you know to defend this Cardassian transport. Whereas the Klingons are more like we don't care what the outcome was. Uh, he shouldn't you know he shouldn't have done it. Yeah, there's the idea of a warrior culture. You would always face your enemy. If it's if it's a decloaking ship, you don't yeah. know it's an enemy yet. You have to yeah. see it. It's a little Ned Stark there, right? Yeah, he who, could, Stark who, there, yeah. who makes the execution should swing the sword, or who pronounces the judgment should yeah. swing the sword, and, and that kind of thing. And I think you you really get into the idea as well. You know, in in sort of the the concepts of the Klingon warrior empire. Um, and and what they're really sort of portraying it as is this idea of it's honorable combat. It's not combat to win. It's combat for the honor of having yeah. combat. The way and, you win matters. Yeah, yeah. The way you win matters. Whether or not you win doesn't matter. Yeah. And that's I think the the, the key. Let's say it's not it. consistent from episode to episode no, in Star Trek, but they, they just try to set up this ideal of the Klingons as a warrior culture that has this this almost um, it's almost like a feudal Japanese maybe honor system that you know you you have to do things a certain way or yeah. you bring shame upon your house. It's loosely and, based upon it somewhere in the past, but yeah. you know that's what that's always seems like to me. But I don't. I do, I'm, Full disclosure: I don't know anything about feudal Japan, so I'm just yeah. I'm going off of you know guesses. Yeah, but and, and again, I think it's a it's a it's a good episode. And again, I think what you you really bump into in conjunction with this is the idea of the use of the law in some sense as a plot device. It sets up this very creative thing of you know you have what is sort of unquestionably a breach of of. Uh, protocol. Yeah, engagement and protocol. Engagement protocol. But you also have the issue is he's in the Defiant, which is not exactly a warship either. You know, and that's part of the thing. Yeah, it's with a special it, you know? ops type ship. Yeah. And so, you know, he'd be seriously outclassed by a major warship to the fact that if a you know major warship decloaked in front of him, that a would toast. get destroyed. <laughs> um, yeah. you know. So his only chance to beat, you know, three Klingon warbirds is to is to get the drop on him, basically. Yeah. Um, and again, I think that's the idea of it's the, you know, what really sort of portrayed in conjunction with this is that sort of in the idea of what Klingon culture is supposed to be, Worf should die. Yeah. You know, in this, you are, you are faced with a superior enemy. You should simply lose because that is the honorable thing to do. So, and so, and what would Star Trek do with them, or Star uh, Starfleet? You know, he would probably have a, a court martial. Maybe um, yeah. he might receive a censure or something like that. Maybe be demoted, removed from his post, or something. But they're not going to execute him. Yeah, and, and again, part of the thing would also be is conjunction with is they look at motivations and say, hey, he was in this extremely tough situation. Mm-hmm. His life was on the line. The life of those he was protecting was on the line. Yeah, he's got a crew yes, in his ship. He, he has to wrong, take care of. But he took initiative, and yes, we're going to censure him for it. We're going to issue some kind of demotion, whatever it might be. But it's not, a, you know, it's not in some sense a career-ending mistake in yeah. many respects. Yeah, and it, uh, the the evidentiary issues are interesting too, because in, in a in a proper trial setting, you would you would object to all that stuff, right? That, yeah. You know what what Worf does on his holodeck time is is irrelevant, right? To what happened in this particular incident. So yeah. what they're looking for there is impeachment evidence, and in you know under American law at least, you'd say that it's irrelevant. The fact that he has this holodeck. Simulation, you know, it'd be like saying, "Well, he listens to heavy metal music, so clearly he's violent, right?" Well, the fact that yeah. you listen to heavy metal doesn't make you more prone to violence than anything else, right? There, there's no, there's no basis for saying that, yeah. and that's the same kind of he thing. Played video games, yeah, Wait, do, all that, yep, <laughs> yeah. And, and, but you know, but Worf is all like, oh, "I have nothing to hide," you know. He's just gonna, you know, put it all out there and, and be judged, and, and you have to, you know, and that's part of his character too. Yeah. Is he's not going to run from these bad facts, and he rejects anybody's attempts to say, "No, you have to cover this stuff up." And he's like, "Nope, I will be judged," you know, by by how he actually is. Uh, and he'll, he'll do that to his detriment, knowing it weakens his case because that's his sense of honor. So once again, you have this conflict between sort of his, his cultural values of honor versus how this legal system is set up. And they, they, don't, they don't work together. That, I think, is actually one of the good things to get into. And I think it's one of those things that really is, when we talk about legal systems and we talk about the idea of more formal legal systems you know, in conjunction with these, one of the things to keep in mind with it is that a lot of times what we bump into in these is not formal legal systems, but the concept of honor being used in fantasy and science fiction as a way to be a default system for legal you know legal yeah. organization and there, there's probably some historical precedent yeah, for there, that. there are historical honor based justice um, systems yeah there's obviously honor based justice systems revenge based like systems honor based you know yep. yeah but you know you see those kind of things arise a lot in conjunction with you know I think in science fiction and fantasy partially because of the fact they allow you to create interesting setups that we have problems with and again I'm going to jump to Game of Thrones but the uh, the the fight you know where they yeah. have to resolve the who is you know is guilty and it's you know the it's the mountain versus um, Oberon Martell right yeah I think uh, so it is what it is and of course it's completely one sided yeah but then it's the issue of the oh well you can accept a champion if they'll take it on your behalf 
Yep. You know, and then you get the champion stepping up, and now it's essentially a fair fight. And, you know, the intriguing idea behind that is, like, we look at that as a way to resolve disputes and say, you know, one, it's horribly archaic, but it's also something that's very interesting because the idea of, as us, as us thinking of people today— would you step up to do that? You know, would you expect anybody to step up and do that? Because there is kind of a personal moral, personal honor type code there, which in many respects is is encoded in the justice system there, mm. but is not encoded in the justice system that I think most of us are familiar with. Well, it also raises questions, too, about the fundamental nature of a legal or political system. And does it all ultimately boil down to might makes right? He who has the power to enforce his will ultimately wins. Because if we defy the government's rules... You know, how do, they, how do they ultimately enforce them? It's yeah. ultimately through the threat of violence, right? They're yeah. going to take you into custody prison, and lock yeah. you up in prison, yeah. But if you resist, they're going to have to commit violence against you. I, I heard a quote once that all property is violence, that your ability to defend what is quote-unquote yours is just a function of whether you can get people to use force in defense of the things that you say are yours in these in these legal systems, which when I first heard that, I thought, no, that's nonsense. You know, property is what it is. But when you think about it, there's some there's some uh, a little bit of appeal to that. And, and you see these sort of echoes of these antiquated ideas of justice with the duel, you know, and I think the the historical antecedent for that in our world is the idea of divine intervention. We're going yeah. to appoint two two champions, and God will pick who is right, and that yep. person's going to win. Well, actually, one of the things I think was great with the duel, and if you guys haven't seen it, I'd, I'd suggest seeing it. And it's you know, I love the thing is go see Hamilton, and more importantly, Still actually get the soundtrack. And the reason is my favorite song in Hamilton. I, I, I saw the the stage show. I've never heard the soundtrack. I got the soundtrack afterwards. Um, is um, the rules of the duel? There's a song which dis discusses the Ten Duel Commandments. Um, and, and it's done as part of the counting from one to ten in conjunction with the duel. But it walks through sort of what the stages of the duel were. Now, who knows if this is historically accurate, yeah. but it's one of those things where I think what's very interesting in the idea of walking through the stages of the duel is effectively what it is, is nine stages of trying to force negotiation and a tenth stage which you have to have to allow the nine stages to try to force negotiation. Yeah, It's the threat hanging over everybody yes. if we can't get this resolved, which is not that dissimilar to the a trial, right? Yeah. Do you want to go through the hassle, expense, and uncertainty of a trial, uh, and and then what, and then the dealing with the outcome of that, or you just want to negotiate something that we're all equally unhappy yeah. about? Or even not necessarily the trial, but the idea of you know again, if you have somebody who's threatened with imprisonment, yeah. If you know you know that the odds are you're going to be found guilty, whether or not you did it, but the odds are you're going to be found guilty of doing it. Do you negotiate something which is better, or do you risk that odds of being yeah. found with it? And I think that's one of the real key things in conjunction with sort of any legal system is the idea of legal systems. And I always say this, and, and I've said this to people repeatedly: a legal system is designed to resolve dispute the parties can't resolve themselves that's yeah. what a legal system a very is for formalistic way to end arguments yeah you ultimately have to have a way to end the argument and that's that way to end the argument is never going to be something which the parties would sort of voluntarily accept the outcome once they know what the outcome is. It will be detrimental to one of the two parties. Yeah, someone's going to lose. Yeah, it, somebody's going to lose. The losing party, if they knew they were going to lose, would presumably always settle. The issue with it is, is you can't figure out who's going to lose. Yeah. It's, you've got this sort of absolute system, and that's, the duel may be the best example of it, where, you know, in a duel, part of the idea is, you know, you have a decent chance of ending up dead. Now, you also have the possibility that both people miss yeah. You know, guns were not exactly accurate at the point in time that duels were allowed in the United States. You know, even sword duels were oftentimes not done to the death. They were just done to, you know, first blood, you know, sort of things along those lines. Um, but it's the kind of idea where, you know, if both people fired and both people missed, it's considered resolved. Yeah. You know, and, and she was sort of looking to say, well, who's right? And the answer is no one. That's the answer. Well, you, you see this echoing through just, you know, social order now. You, you know, I, you see this online a little bit or even like in like bars where, you know, two people have had a little bit to drink and someone bumps into somebody else and they kind of push and shove a little bit and then size each other up and then nobody does anything and they kind of go their own way. But yeah. every once in a while you'll hear someone, you know, threaten to kick someone's butt or something like as if the fact that I'm bigger and stronger and tougher than you means that whatever I did was justifiable and right. It, it doesn't. It just means nobody's going to pick a fight about it because they're going to lose and you know and, and whatever it was is not that big of a deal but yeah. this whole idea of, of if you know if I can beat you up then then I should get my way you know is is a, is a very very old concept for for what justice is yeah uh, and, and we see those echoes kind of throughout you know uh, throughout history and yeah. we see it in some of this this literature too yeah and I think that's what we see in conjunction with these when we talk about the idea of these sort of you know like you know very you know rigid legal systems being portrayed in Star Trek and things like that what part of that 
that comes from the idea that this is a very strong might makes right. The might is very strong on the idea yeah. of doing this. And, and maybe just turning back to the episode Justice, I think that's the real point in conjunction with this, which is the, you know, we can enforce this upon our citizens because we have this, you know, effectively, you know, uh, the supernatural power. Yeah, the the threat of this guy that will punish us all that we fear. Yeah. But that, you know, but they also recognize you've also got a starship and you can just leave. Yeah. And, and you're nothing we can and do about it. And blow us up too. I mean, that's yeah. the, yeah. And so, and so and they, they candidly acknowledge that. And ultimately, you know, this sort of philosophical question is what happened there just? And, yeah. you know, in, the point in, of the episode, I think. Yeah, the whole point of the episode is what what is justice? And I remember when I was in law school, uh, I had a class that was a mix of law students and economics students. And Kirk, <laughs> Kirk has an economics degree, so he'll appreciate this. And we had an economics professor teach part of it and a law professor teach part of it. And the economics professor was going on at some point about, he's a Nobel Prize winning economics professor, so he knows this stuff. But he was talking about how, you know, lawyers tend to think that they romanticize what we do because we're, you know, we work for the justice system. And he says, can someone explain to me what the point of the legal system is? And our law professor says, it's to produce justice. And he goes, great, define justice. And our professor kind of thinks for a second and says, it's undefinable. Yeah, and I think I think there's some truth to that, right? Like what justice is is really in the eye of the beholder, and these that's, I think that's what a lot of these, um, uh, you know, even like like Game of Thrones, setting aside all of this analysis, you know, at the end of it, we're, you know, fans are really upset about how the show ended. For the record, I'm not that upset about it. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I'm more upset about some of the the questionable writing choices, but overall, I'm fine with the season. But fans look at it, and they don't think that the characters that they liked got justice. They don't like how their stories ended up. That's not fair to so-and-so. That's not fair to, to so-and-so. You know, how, how could you do that to them, to the writers? They, don't, they feel like they've uh, you know, not been served with justice for what these characters had to endure in this fictional world. Yep. And, and I think the, the, the great thing about that, and I think that Maybe maybe this is a good place to, to sort of end this. Is when we talk about the idea of, of law being portrayed in film, what we're usually not seeing is the portrayal of law as law. We're seeing the portrayal of law as presenting a question of justice. Yeah. And they recognize, I think, in, in good writers at least in conjunction with it, recognize that. The, the question of what is justice is not going to necessarily be found the same way for the different viewers. And, and they so don't have to answer it. Either. Give it a little open, and yeah. they let you figure it out. I mean, again, Game of Thrones, I think, is the perfect example. And actually, quite frankly, I think it's the thing that George R. R. Martin did in his book, which, you know, and, and going back to the original books, you know, in conjunction with it, that was new at the time, which was it's not a just world. Yeah. In in the way we are used to. We are used to when we read a novel, the main character succeeds. Yeah. When you read the original Game of Thrones being the first book of A Song of Ice and Fire, you are very strongly behind Ned Stark. He is a wonderful person until three quarters of the way into it and suddenly he is not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and it's that kind of thing. And that happens in two pages. It's an incredibly st- sudden occurrence. It's a very unexpected occurrence because he does a great job of foreshadowing exactly what you expect to happen. What you've been taught by watching countless TV shows and movies yeah. and read countless books, the protagonist gets to the end and wins. That's yeah. the whole point. The drama comes from the protagonist yeah. working against a problem and overcoming it. And again, and I'm going to co- do it from the books and I'll give a little bit of a spoiler, but it's one of those... It's not that you know, big this of a is, spoiler. End of first season, <laughs> so it's not a big deal. But Ned Stark is executed... Uh, in the course of doing it, when he's on trial and sort of before hit, again, in the books, there's a big push of the idea. There's lots of ways to defer his execution, one of which is effectively for him to the, – the, it's traditional that essentially the king would give him the option of taking the black um, and going and serving on the wall because criminals can go and serve on the wall. It's a big way they're getting people to serve on the wall at this point in time is they're grabbing you know, the, the criminals, contents yeah. of the dungeons and stuff like that, the criminals. And that's a very traditional thing to do. Um, and because of that, there's always a representative of the Black Watch in the audience to accept his oath immediately if they're going to do it. And he sets up that that person's there, that person knows him. You know, there, there's all this kind of setup as to the fact that that's what's going to happen, which also makes sense from a story point of view. You have this mm-hmm. very accomplished leader, very good combatant. Hey, you know stuff's coming. You know, you know the wall's going to be a war at some point in time, even yeah, halfway through they, the first book. They set book. that up pretty early. You know, and then suddenly it's no, we're going to execute him anyway. We're not going to give him that option. We're not going to, you know, we're just going to execute him anyway. And it's, you know, too bad we're executing him anyway. And his head's chopped off six lines later. Yeah. You know, and you're sitting here and you're like, no, wait a minute. That wasn't what was supposed to happen. Yeah. And 
what what's I think that was the thing that, that in many respects I think that's why Game of Thrones became what it became is I think George R. R. Martin was one of the first people to really effectively do that in writing. It's narrative misjustice or yeah. injustice, and it's something that that people you know writers don't want to take that risk. And and there's a it's been on Twitter recently a letter he wrote to his publisher saying I'm going to kill off characters. I'm going to introduce characters, make you love them, and then kill them. Yeah. And it will it will increase the dramatic tension of the series because you will quickly learn that nobody is safe yeah. uh, and that will raise the stakes. Yeah, and I think that's a great thing. One of the ones that it's if, you, if you're into Game of Thrones, by the way, and you like the books particularly, um, I cannot remember the name of the first book, but the series is called The Dandelion War, um, which is a sort of Game of Thrones type story. Mm-hmm. It's a very like epic, globe-spanning thing. Um, the author has said it's based loosely upon some of the ideas of feudal Korea, so it's definitely set as sort of a different than European style, which I'd say more Game of Thrones is set up. Yep. He also has very similar sort of plays in the way he does with George R. R. Martin of, you know, who are the heroes, who are the anti-heroes, what's going to happen in here and there are stages in there where the the stakes get very high one of my favorite chapters in that book and I thought he actually executed it brilliantly you're introduced to this this village which is essentially idyllic has a queen that's sort of that's dedicated to peace and to the fact that this is going to be you know ideological and you you spend a whole chapter being introduced to her and how wonderful she is and how she's going to basically stop this invading army um, by going out and talking to them and everything's going to be wonderful until they kill her and ransack, and ransack the village. And you're sitting here and you're like, yeah, occasionally diplomacy doesn't work. And y- you really feel for it. You're like, this was a great location he set up. I'd love to know more about it. And it's just been raised to the ground. I think the author, I'm just looking this up, the author is Richard Rosenthal? Does that sound right? Uh, it doesn't sound necessarily right as to what it is. But. Oh, all right. Well, you, you all can Google it. We'll try and find it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Dandelion War. All right. Well, uh, so that's it for today. Um, this is a topic we could talk about for a long time. And I guess we kind of did wander into a lot of law narrative in story. Yeah. But uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun topic, and, uh, and hopefully you all enjoyed it. We may turn back to it at some point in time, too. We've thought about the idea of doing some of these slightly more in-subject episodes, yeah. and we said we weren't going to do them. Um, just because I think we, we've heard from people who've listened to the podcast that it interests them. They want to sort of see how does this play yep. in a universe in addition to how does it play outside the universe. The other thing we've heard from people frequently is that they like the discussion of actual cases. So I have not actually screened this with Kirk yet, so he's hearing this for the first time. But I think for the next episode, we might go through a bunch of Star Wars lawsuits. Um, actual <laughs> lawsuits in the real world invo- involving Star Wars and Star Wars IP. Uh, so that may be uh, the, the next one we kind of walk through. What happened? Who won? Yep. And, uh, and how they came out? And and. You know, you can kind of review those in the context of, of this episode, like was justice done in those cases or not. So, so that's probably coming up next. Uh, so there's the music, and it's time to go. Uh, you can check out our website at lggpodcast.com. It has links to our various platforms where you can download prior episodes, get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and by email. And if you would, please subscribe to this podcast on the platforms. Give us a review. That helps new listeners find us. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and Kirk is at KirkDMN. That is all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 